This is an ABC podcast. Should researchers collect and publish statistics which reveal how individual judges and tribunal members decide cases? Is this a way of understanding legal decision-making, improving transparency and openness? Or does it risk undermining confidence in the justice system? Can uncontextualised statistical data and unnuanced or slanted commentary on the stats throw as much shadow as it does light on how decisions are reached? Damien Carrick here. This is The Law Report on RN. We're looking at two pieces of research being published by the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at the University of New South Wales. The centre's Deputy Director is Associate Professor Daniel Gesselbash. Daniel Gesselbash, what are the two publications and what is the significance of each? We're releasing a paper that examines the variations in the way federal circuit and family court judges decide refugee cases and the significant variance of your chances of success depending on which judge you're allocated. And the second piece of research came out of the Grattan Institute and that looks at the politicisation of appointments at the AAT. And you're taking that information from the Grattan Institute about who is, as they describe it, a politically affiliated member and cross-referencing that with the way they decide decisions at the AAT. Yes. And that's a Grattan report from earlier in July. Now, before we talk about the findings, what are you trying to achieve here? And do you acknowledge the dangers of what you're doing? Look, firstly, in terms of what we're trying to achieve, it's really all about transparency. And, you know, we believe that using publicly available information to scrutinise the behaviour of the courts and tribunals is not only healthy for democracy, but also enhances the authority and reputation of these institutions. But that's uh, not to downplay the sensitivities around this sort of quantitative analysis of decision-making. Similar research in France prompted the government there to introduce criminal prohibitions on carrying out this sort of research and in particular naming individual judges. And the French judges had raised concerns that the publication of statistics of this nature could put pressure on them to move towards an average outcome and undermine their independence. And I mean, one of the other common critiques of this form of research is that statistics never capture the nuances and the merits of each individual case. And also they can be taken out of context to undermine public faith in the legal system. And while we do acknowledge these risks, we think they can be managed through careful and nuanced analysis. And I think right at the outset, I want to make very clear that the statistics we're going to discuss today do not capture the complexity of each and every case decided by these judges and tribunal members. And nor do they provide any sort of causal evidence that specific variables we talk about are influencing the outcome of a case. Now, Daniel Gesselbesch, you are a refugee lawyer. I understand you're a refugee yourself, very involved throughout your life with refugee rights. Is this academic research or is it a form of activism? I would definitely shy away from the label of activism here. It really is using publicly available information to create greater transparency about the system, but also create an evidence base for improving and increasing the fairness of the refugee determination system in Australia. And I don't think anyone would disagree with the goal of making decision-making these bodies more fair. And this sort of data that we have is one tool that could be used to that end. And you know, we, we focus on refugee decision-making here in particular because the stakes are just so high. 
know, these are literally life or death decisions. And you know, if 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 they're made incorrectly, you risk that a asylum seeker is sent back to a place where they could face serious harm or even death. So before we talk about the research findings. In very brief terms, how does the system for deciding a refugee claim work? Broadly, there are three steps, aren't there? Yeah, so the asylum seeker first has their claim assessed by the Department of Immigration. And if they're unsuccessful there, they can seek review at the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. And then the next stage of review is at the courts. And the Federal Circuit and Family Court is the first port of call there. Whereas in the, at the tribunal, the review looks at whether a person is in fact a refugee and is owed protection. Review in the courts is much narrower and it focuses on a very narrow legal question of whether there's been a material error of law in the way the tribunal had reached that decision. So it sort of merits review at the tribunal stage. The tribunal member looks at all the facts and comes to a determination. And then the second judicial review stage by the courts is, is looking at whether the initial tribunal decision maker uh, was acting within the law, following all the rules of law. Precisely. And whereas the tribunal has a power to issue an applicant with a visa, all the courts can do is remit the batter back to the tribunal for redetermination. So the first piece of research that we're going to talk about today is a peer-reviewed article which is coming out in the next edition of the UNSW Law Journal, and that looks at judicial review. That looks at the decisions of the judges um, in, in reviewing these decisions of the tribunal members. What results did you find? So just to be clear here, Damien, so we, it, this data covers the judicial review in the federal circuit and, and uh, family courts. That's the first port of call for judicial review. And we have an original data set of, of 6,700 cases uh, decided between 2013 and 2021 that we use an automated computer code to extract key data points from. And I think th some of the most significant findings here were just a very high level of variation in success rates before different judges. I mean, firstly, I should say the chances of success across the board were quite low. So it, only around 7.7% of cases were successful at judicial review. But your success rate as an applicant would vary from anywhere between 0.6% up to 23%, depending on which judge was allocated to your case. I think there are 52 judges who do this work. You, you concentrated on the 30 judges who decided 50 or more refugee cases. So you didn't look at all of them, just the ones who did the bulk of the work. Who are the judges who are at the, at the extremes? So we have um, Judge Vasta, uh, who's at... Uh, that 0.6%, so that's one case out of 165 cases that he's heard has been remitted back to the tribunal for redetermination. Uh, Judge Emmett is on 1.3%, so that's five out of 391 cases. And Judge Street on 2% with 23 cases remitted out of 1,144 cases. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we have Judges Jones, Riley and Reithmuller who all have success rates of over 20%. Now, some judges hear a lot more cases than others, don't they? Yes. And so, I mean, in terms of interpreting this data, it's very unlikely to be explained by the merits, respective merits of the case, because there's a, a docket system at the court that randomly allocates cases to members of the relevant panel here, which is the, the Migration and Administrative Law Panel. But the number of cases heard by judges within, within that panel very significantly. And uh, that's because we have a number of judges 
that rely very heavily on extempore judgments. And, and these are judgments delivered orally on the day. Uh, so it allows them to churn through many more cases and hear many more cases. So, for example, um, Ju Judge Street um, has heard, single-handedly heard, 20% of the entire refugee caseload during the period which he's been on the bench. And that's, again, largely relying on extempore judgments. And it's also, there's a very clear correlation between the judges that deliver those very quick judgments and very low success rates. And what about legal representation? Does that make a difference if, if an individual litigant has a lawyer? Yeah, so this was one of our, our key findings. And there's a really makes a big difference um, having a lawyer. So your chances of success were six times more likely if you were represented in the court compared to if you were not. And what about gender? Yeah, so we found that uh, female judges were 1.8 times more likely to make a, a favourable ruling for a refugee applicant uh, than their male counterparts. Okay, so what conclusions do you draw from this data, from, from these statistics? So again, just to be clear, these do not provide sort of any objective measurement of judicial behaviour. And I think it's really about the, the questions that they raise rather than any definitive answers they provide. I think uh, you know, understanding the further investigating the reasons for these really significant discrepancies that we see in success rates is very important. And um, there's also some you know, potential applications in terms of both understanding and counteracting cognitive and social biases in, in, in decision-making. What do you mean? So there's, uh, I think it's widely accepted now that all forms of decision-making are influenced by, by cognitive and social biases. And while our data does not necessarily demonstrate that uh, that is occurring for individual judges, there is a whole body of literature and research in the behavioral psychology field that shows providing this sort of statistics that we have as a feedback tool for judges can be a very effective tool in counteracting social and cognitive biases. You've been working in this area for a while, but, but these are much bigger, a deeper, a broader set of statistics than you've ever published before. Have litigants ever tried to use these kinds of stats to argue that they're not getting a fair hearing? Yes, there have been a number of attempts to try and rely on on statistics uh, to to make out what's known as a claim of apprehended bias, and this is basically a test for for having a judge recuse themselves from hearing a case uh, because a hypothetical member of the public would perceive them as having a risk of not bringing an impartial mind to the question. And so, this uh, in legal terms, they refer to it as this fair-minded lay observer, uh, but. You know, the earlier existing attempts at making out claims of apprehended bias based on statistics have been unsuccessful. It, they've, they've involved Justice Street, haven't they? they? They have. So there was a there was a full federal court decision that looked at this matter with statistics on on Judge Street, and um, so the court really rejected the the application on, on two grounds. One was the nature and quality of the statistics that were used in that case. And uh, so they covered a very short period and they were comparing Judge Street's decision-making over a specific period with an average that came from a separate period on, on the court. And there were, you know, there were a few other concerns about the nature and quality of statistics. And you know, I think our data set really overcomes those concerns and we have um, you know, a much more robust and statistics having a much broader period. What will be more, more difficult to overcome is 
the skepticism of the court that statistics alone could ever be used to make out a claim for apprehended bias. And they basically said that it has to be accompanied with detailed analysis of every case. And even then, if you found there was, a, you know, some of those cases were, were decided incorrectly, that wouldn't even mean bias because it could be you know, due to the human frailty of the judge. So they've really set the benchmark very, very high. And um, that test, that fair-minded lay observer test has been criticized significantly, a lot of widespread criticism around that. And if we see you know, evolution in the way that test is applied, then we could see a different outcome in future cases. So it's unlikely, well, at the moment, that that your statistics could be used as a way of arguing for apprehended bias, but you're hoping that your statistics will inform discussion around how the courts operate and maybe around judicial education, maybe around judicial workflows and work patterns. Look, absolutely. So there could be, I've already raised concerns about that heavy reliance on the extempore judgments and... um, the way that decision making is, is concentrated in the hands of you know, really just a handful of judges. And um, I've talked briefly about cognitive and social biases and the potential for this data to be able to counteract such biases. But you know, they will never be able to stop or prevent judges bringing their life experiences and their worldviews towards their decision making. And if we can you know, diversify members of the bench and the backgrounds which they come from. And so broaden that pool, I think uh, we've got some way to addressing some of these issues. You're listening to The Law Report on RN. I did approach the Federal Circuit and Family Court for its response to Daniel Gesselbash's article. Here's part of a written statement. As the research is based on data only and limited details from the cover sheet of a judgment, the court is concerned that this research has the potential to mislead litigants, as no meaningful consideration of the factual and legal context of the judge's decisions has been considered. Judicial decision-making should not be evaluated through this limited and simplistic approach. It should also be noted that there is a robust appeal process which ensures that judicial decision-making is subject to appropriate review and scrutiny. The full statement is available at the Law Report website. I'm in conversation with Associate Professor Daniel Gesselbash. He's Deputy Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. So far, we've been talking about a peer-reviewed article which will appear in the next edition of the UNSW Law Journal, but as normal practice, is being published by the authors ahead of the journal publication date. Daniel Gesselbash, let's turn to the second publication. You are also number-crunching refugee cases heard by the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. That's a step before cases reach the courts. You've looked at a report published by the Grattan Institute which identified what it described as members with strong political affiliations. What did that report find and what kind of number crunching have you done with that information supplied by the Grattan Institute? That Grattan Institute report documented just how widespread the practice of political appointments have become in, in public bodies and in particular in the AAT with uh, finding a staggering 20% of AAT members have a direct political connection to the government that appointed them. So they actually had a quite a narrow de- definition. So they were either uh, politicians or candidates or, or staffers or directly employed by the relevant party. 
They were the group identified by the Grattan Institute as having a political affiliation, uh, AAT members appointed having a political affiliation. What have you done with that information and, and how have you built on your previous research in this space? So we were interested in the issue from before this piece of work came out. And, and what we've done previously is look at the success rates of members who were first appointed by the Labour Party versus those first appointed by the coalition government. And we find you know, quite a significant level of, of variation there. You know, your chances of success before an ALP-appointed member as a refugee applicant was 19.7%. And it was almost half that if you had an LMP appointed member at 10.5%. Now, you're not talking there about people with strong affiliations with, with either party, but simply people who are appointed during the, the time of the government of, of each party. Exactly, exactly. And then there was the Grattan data, which they, they kindly shared with us, allowed us to drill further and look specifically at those people who had explicit political affiliations. And then that success rate drops even further to, to 9.8%. How many AAT members identified as political appointees by the Grattan Institute report hear refugee cases? There's 23 of them, and six of those have never found in favour of a refugee applicant. And how many cases have they heard? Are we talking about statistically significant numbers? It varies. So within that six, uh, they range between one who's heard four cases and one member that's heard 90 cases and rejected um, all the refugee applications. And how do these figures for political appointees compare with the wider cohort of uh, AAT tribunal members who hear refugee cases? So in terms of the, the numbers that have never found in favour of the of the refugee applicant, the non-political appointments is around... 10% of members have never found in favour of a refugee applicant, 10.6%, whereas, as we discussed with those numbers there with the political appointments, it's 26%. Uh, but in terms of the overall success rate, you have um, the average for the success rate for the political appointments is 9.8% and 14.61% before the non-political appointees. And can you tell me about some of the decision-making profiles of some of these political appointees without identifying them? Yes, so there's some, as we discussed, that have decided as many as 90 cases and never in a single case found in favour of the refugee applicant. Then there is is another member who's decided 167 cases with only uh, five of those in favour of the refugee applicant, so a success rate under 3%. And are there non-political appointees with similar decision-making records? The only person in our data set that's decided more than 50 cases, never found in favour of a refugee applicant, is one of the political appointees. But there certainly are uh, statistical outliers across the board, both in terms of LMP and ALP appointments. So it's a complex picture? It's, it definitely is a complex picture. There are also you know, ALP-appointed members who have never found in favour of the refugee applicant. No one has decided 10 cases, another has decided 37 cases. What conclusions can you draw from these figures? I think we have to be careful and nuanced in the conclusions that we draw here because we don't have information on the nature of the claims that are being determined by these various members. I think it certainly raises 
issues to be further explained and explored. But you know, it could be that some of these variations are based on the specific types of cases members are assigned to. And unlike the, at, at the court, where there's a random ticket a docket-based allocation, uh, members tend to focus on claims from particular countries and specific types of claims within those countries. But I, I certainly think it warrants further investigation. So acknowledging that AAT members often specialise in, in different kinds of cases or particular kinds of cases, that can include, say, countries of origin. How does that factor into the kinds of decisions that we're seeing and um, what conclusions we might draw from that when it comes to both political appointees and more generally? Yeah, so obviously the chances of success generally vary based on what country you come from with the conditions in countries varying. But we also see some significant variation within specific countries. So, for example, you know, as an Iranian asylum seeker, the average chance of success is uh, around 49%. And then it can, depending on which decision maker you get, it can vary from anywhere between 0% up to 93%. But again, you know, these should, figures should be approached with a little bit of caution, given that it may be that those decision makers are focusing on different types of claims from within those countries. And look, it's complicated because some of that might be explained by, say, one AAT member might specialise in cases involving a particular religious minority in Iran, and others might um, focus on uh, what, maybe gender or LGBT or, 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 or other attributes which might make somebody a refugee. Are these the kinds of distinctions which need to be teased out before any uh, conclusions can be drawn? Precisely, precisely, Damien. I think what these statistics do is that they invite a conversation about the significant variation we're seeing success rates about an attempt to explain them. When you talked about judicial review, cases before judges, you talked about the importance of legal representation. Does that also come up in the statistics when you're looking at uh, appearances before the Administrative uh, Appeals Tribunal? Uh, yes, Damien, it's, it's actually even more significant before the AAT where you know, applicants that are represented by a lawyer or a migration agent are seven times more likely to succeed than those that don't have representation. And you know, this really underscores the importance of legal representation and the, the need for the government to refund refugee law service providers. A spokesperson for the Administrative Appeals Tribunal had this to say in response to the published data. Each case is decided on its unique and individual facts, which cannot be captured by statistics alone. Basing conclusions on data or statistics should be approached with great caution. There are multiple factors which contribute to a member's decision. Members who hear refugee cases at the AAT undertake significant rigorous training and development. They're independent decision-makers obliged, pursuant to their oath or affirmation, to make their decisions faithfully and impartially, based on the facts and circumstances presented in each individual case. A copy of the full statement from the AAT is available at the Law Report website. What can we do with this information, this statistical information about political appointees as, as defined by the Grattan Institute and, and their decision-making records as you've identified them? What, what do we do with this information in your view? This is preliminary data and, you know, as I said, there requires further investigation to, to understand the, the reasons for this variation. But I think it is one piece of additional evidence that supports 
a call that has been made by the Grad Institute as well as many other bodies and reports, including the Cullinan Review in 2018, that we need an independent, transparent, merits-based appointment uh, system for the AAT. In order to assure a kind of a, a quality of decision-making? Well, just to ensure that we don't have people with political affiliations that are on these bodies. And, you know, one of the things is, you know, I think the in terms of public perception of this variation, I think um, part of why it's so problematic is because the public know that there is not a transparent appointment procedure. And uh, I think people would be much more comfortable with variations in the sort of success rates of outcomes if they knew there was some sort of independent transparent process for making these forms of appointments. But you know, the lack of transparency combined with these political appointments is not a very good look publicly. And you would invite other researchers to, to look closely at the data that you're putting out there um, to, to do that research? Yes. Yeah, so we are publishing our full data set, both for the Federal Circuit and Magistrates Court, as well as our data on the AAT uh, up online as part of the, our new data lab at the Caldor Centre. And you know, the hope is that other researchers and interested parties will, will dig into that and, and find other interesting avenues of inquiry. Uh, but again, I think, I hope it's used with nuance. This is one data point that warrants investigation, but we should be cognizant that it is not a measurement, objective measurement of decision-making, and there's lots of factors that go into decision-making in this context. You work on judicial review uh, decisions by judges. Look, a peer-reviewed academic publication, it's it's a heavy-duty 25-page academic article. It's been through a number of, of hoops to get to this point. But, but this other material um, around an AAT members, um, an Excel spreadsheet, right? I mean, could that be described as a data dump? I mean, is, there, uh, is, it, is it too bald? I mean, does revealing, presenting information in this way raise real issues about how it might be used or, or misused? All we're doing is drawing on publicly available information and, and, and compiling it. And I think uh, it's the analysis has been through peer review. And as, as I said, the AAT analysis is preliminary and we will be publishing peer review articles on it. But the data is all drawn from the public record. It's just been compiled in a way that, that's um, easily accessible. And um, I really don't think we should be too concerned about having this out there. I think rather than undermining public confidence, I think having this form of transparency around the way these important public institutions are carrying out their functions will, in fact, increase public confidence in, in their operation. And um, one of our key suggestions and recommendations is that given the ease of collecting and collating this sort of data, the, the inevitability of researchers like ourselves collating and presenting this data, that it's really time that courts and tribunals get on the front foot and collect this sort of statistical data themselves, present it themselves, along with the nuanced analysis and explanation. And I think that would go even further than what we're doing in creating greater public confidence in the, in the legal system. You mentioned before that uh, France had actually outlawed this kind of research. What about other jurisdictions? Uh, is the kind of research that you're doing uh, taking place in, in other equivalent countries? Yes. And, you know, France, I should say, is really the outlier here. And there are you know, pro projects underway. In, there's been a long history of this form of research in the United States and, and Canada. And there's a, a new project doing this across Nordic countries. And um, they're 
generally done with full cooperation from the governments of those countries who sort of see the value of this sort of evidence base in improving the way their courts and tribunals are operating and refugee decision-making is made. Associate Professor Daniel Gezelbash, Deputy Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you, Damien. It's a pleasure. That's The Law Report for this week. Don't forget the program is available as a podcast anytime from the wonderful ABC Listen app. A big thank you to producer Christina Kokolia and also to technical producer AJ Bradford. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.